0: The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio, originally broadcast in July of 2017. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello, and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. This week's show will feature an interview done not by me, but by Greg McDougall, with Freddie Stony Point, Summer Harmony Twinnish, Trisha Bazanet, Hamda Daria, and Elsa Hoover. The Canadian state spent half a billion dollars to fixate the attention of Canadians on various forms of celebration and self-congratulation to mark the 150th anniversary of Confederation. Yet in the lead-up, and on Canada Day itself, there were plenty of people in grassroots contexts across the country speaking back to this forgetful feel-good nationalism, and offering instead much more critical, but also much more grounded accounts of the actual past and present of the northern half of Turtle Island. These activities took a variety of forms, from quiet reflection to vocal denunciation, And they came from a variety of political places, most prominently a range of Indigenous stances calling out the unrelenting and ongoing settler-colonial violence that is the basis for not just Canada 150 but for Canada itself, and asserting the ongoing and resurgent reality of Indigenous dignity and Indigenous nationhood in the face of it. This included a call by Idle No More and Defenders of the Land, issued in honor of the late Arthur Manuel, for a national day of action to unsettle 150, quote, in support of indigenous self-determination over land, territories, and resources, end quote. Perhaps the most visible action taken to answer that call was the reoccupation ceremony that occurred on Parliament Hill. The reoccupation was a collaboration between the Bawating water protectors from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and a collective of youth based in Ottawa, who were supported by two Cree elders. In the face of opposition from police and security forces, as well as hostility from many ordinary settler Canadians, they succeeded in holding space and engaging in ceremony on the hill from June 28th through Canada Day itself. Despite minimal resources, it was an incredibly successful action. Though they did not get the support they had hoped for from certain people with positions in academic and other institutions before they took action, it was countless gifts of unsolicited grassroots resources and support that made it possible for them to stay on the hill. Though there is certainly a need for more resources and more people taking action on an ongoing basis, they see this approach as a model that can be taken up in community contexts across the country. Indeed, they hope their actions inspire others. In this model, the fact that it is not protest but ceremony is absolutely central, though it is ceremony combined with what you might describe as a direct action ethic. They see this kind of ceremonial intervention as being particularly promising as a way of reclaiming and asserting indigenous jurisdiction over urban spaces. This interview was done on July 2nd, the day after the reoccupation ended, by Greg McDougall. He's a grassroots media maker and community organizer in Ottawa, and you can find more of his work on the website equitableeducation.ca. The interview participants include four of the members of the Ottawa-based side of the Core Organizing Collective of the Reoccupation, so not the folks from Sault Ste. Marie. Freddie Stoneypoint is an Ojibwe youth from Sagamok Anishnabek First Nation, Summer Harmony Twenish is an Algonquin Kwe from Kitigan-Zibi First Nation, Trisha Bazinette is a white settler woman from northern Quebec, and Hamda Daria is a Somali-Canadian Muslim woman. All four of them are students at Carleton University in Ottawa. Also participating in the interview is Elsa Hoover, an Anishinaabe woman who lives in New York and who is active with New York City Stands with Standing Rock. She wasn't a core organizer, but she was an active participant in the reoccupation. And though she wasn't a participant in this interview, you will hear a number of mentions of Candace de Niveau, who is a member of the Bawating Water Protectors. This episode is condensing a much longer interview that was not originally done with Talking Radical Radio in mind, so I'll be providing a little bit more narration than I usually do to tie it all together. It starts out with the participants introducing themselves. My
1: name is Summer Harmony Punish. I'm a second-year art history student at Falcon University.
2: I'm Anishinaabekwe from Tadegan, DB, Quebec. My name is Trey Sunquan. I'm from Sadiq, Quebec, and I'm an undergrad at Carrollton University.
3: My name is Trisha Bazinet. I'm a white settler from Northern Quebec and a BCB student scaling. I'm a PhD student in Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton. Hi, my name is Hamda Diria.
4: I'm a fourth-year Carleton student studying law and Indigenous studies. My name's Elsa Hoover. I'm Anishinaabe. My family's First Nations, but I grew up in the United States, and I came up from the U.S., so I'm part of a collective called NYC Stands with Standing
0: Rock. The collective in Ottawa already knew each other and had already decided that they wanted to do something on Canada Day. Similarly, the Bawating Water Protectors knew they wanted to make the journey from Sault Ste. Marie to Ottawa and take some kind of action then. The genesis of the reoccupation was really about two months before Canada Day when the two groups connected.
3: At that point we had already met because we were planning to do something but we didn't know quite what yet. But once you connected with them, I sent the email like right away to Freddie and then we shared the information and I
2: think we were ready to support what they had in mind. This happened after a meeting with them. I took a train down to Toronto to meet Candace. And then we had about a two-hour conversation about what kind of actions we wanted. And we knew instantly that we were going to work together and that we were going to make a major statement about being Indigenous on Canada Day. And then on our end, we had a lot of people step up in different areas. But for the most part, it was a very small operation, which just proves that even small movements can make a huge impact on the narrative of a national propaganda machine. (laughs) They had a budget of $500 million. We had a
3: budget
0: of $500. As much as they ultimately managed to accomplish, the lack of resources, particularly during the initial organizing, was a major barrier. Given their connections to Carleton University in Ottawa, they were particularly disappointed that a number of people within that institution who sometimes talk about settler colonialism were very reluctant to use the resources to which they had access to actually support action on the ground.
2: We need more resources for our collective because a lot of our organizational time and energy was spent on, you know, supporting ourselves. We're just poor students, you know, just trying to get by, which makes the work of organizing transformative radical action that much more difficult. So if we had more resources, we could even start to imagine more ambitious outcomes for what we want in our collective vision. What we need is the academic community to start pulling up their straps, you know, and start supporting the grassroots movement and not just talking about decolonization, actually putting the practice into action. Earlier on in the process, we did ask people within our Carlton community for help, and the response we largely received was dismissive and skeptical and critical. So it's time for the academics to start walking the walk and not just talking the talk. It's definitely
5: interesting how within academia... And leaders in academia, they can hide behind their books. They can hide behind all this theory and all this language and be really high up there philosophically and epistemologically. But when it actually comes down to crunch time, when we actually need to mobilize because there is this deep urgency, dismantle these horrific systems that are completely dominating over a large groups of people, they stay quiet. These are people who understand the structure, but they are too afraid to actually speak out. And that's kind of the assimilative aspect academia, this kind of the sexiness at least, of academia to kinda of consume people and trap them into, into theories and, and practice and not actually implement them into real life because theory and real life aren't seen as coexisting together. They're seen as two different playing fields and two different realities and they actually mesh quite well together and I th- I feel like that's what we did. We we mesh theory into practice and it worked out fairly well. So it takes to a lot of people as a surprise, specifically academic.
0: The reoccupation took place over four days. The first was June 28th. The collective called for people to meet at the Human Rights Monument, and a group of more than 50 people marched from there towards Parliament Hill. They were blocked by police and security personnel, and there was a standoff for five hours. The standoff included violence committed by the police and ten arrests. On social media, you may have seen the images of teepee poles held by both sides of the standoff. The participants refused to back down, however, and eventually managed to negotiate space to erect the teepee near the East Gate of Parliament. On the second day, June 29th, the reoccupiers decided that they wanted to move the teepee.
5: So the second day that we are in negotiations with the RCMP, the actual moving process was smooth. They actually helped us out helped this movie, we blocked Wellington Street. We had security detail block it off so then we could actually walk down and put the pole safely and securely. And that whole day was actually fairly fairly easy. they were quite cooperative actually. So in the last two days when things got a bit more complicated.
0: It was the third day of the reoccupation, June thirtieth, that saw the implementation of stricter security on Parliament Hill in preparation for Canada Day. The day included an unexpected and, from the reoccupiers' perspective, unwelcome surprise in the form of a visit from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau.
5: That kind of threw us for a loop because we weren't expecting that at all. So it was definitely something that was engineered to distract the narrative and the importance of what we were doing. It suddenly became all about Justin Trudeau, and like they did their deed, they got his attention, they can go home. Our intention wasn't to get him to come visit us. Our intention was to educate the public. Because at the end of the day, it's the citizenry as foot soldiers, essentially, of a colonial system that are recycling all these narratives and it's becoming subsumed into the system and relaying it constantly over and over and over again. So Justin Trudeau can come in and have a conversation. That's his prerogative. But We were trying to come from a bottom-up framework where we're educating people, we're showing them what you're doing and the privileges and the way that you can move through space within Canada, within the colonial system is on the backs of indigenous people. So if you educate yourselves and you learn to dismantle those systems that are ingrained within pretty much every space we occupy, then, you know, it doesn't matter what Trudeau does or it doesn't matter what the AFN does. It's people coming together to dismantle that type of system. So he definitely threw us for a loop. We weren't expecting it, but we didn't let it deter us. It actually gave us a lot of strength. The frustration that came out of it, it ricocheted off to other organizations, other people, and we were able to feed off of it and do
0: some good. Also on that day, as they alluded to earlier, the police and security personnel became much less cooperative. When they tried to erect a second structure by the teepee, really just an open rain shelter to help keep people dry, police and security prevented it. They also forbade the reoccupiers from lighting a sacred fire, but the reoccupiers managed to do that anyway.
3: That took a lot of strategizing as well.
5: We were kind of looking at how the R C M P and security detail was revolving around the teepee and like at what peak time most of them were present or when they kinda dispersed. And it was we're seeing it's more so in the evenings that there wasn't a lot of security detail on the site. So we were able to strategize collectively to figure out a way to sneak the wood into the teepee, also sneak the fire pit into the teepee, and to establish a human chain, essentially. So we put a call out through phone, through text messages, through any medium possible to quickly get people to congregate onto the hills and formulate a human chain. And we were able to secure the fire. Then the human chain turned to a round dance afterwards. And we were able to invite individuals who were there just to see the sound system being displayed. They joined us and we were able to actually have some really good conversations with people because they didn't know what was going on. These are <laughs> some passerby, and they joined the round dance and not a first-hand experience to see that we actually aren't like angry protesters and we're here just peacefully and what they were seeing on the news was something completely different, right? What they're seeing on the news is flashpoints of tension. The relationships that we had with the RCMP and the PPS, it criminalized the way that we were establishing our initiative. It criminalized the ceremony. When these people joined into the round dance and saw all this happening, they got that first-hand experience to see that we're just here doing what we believed in.
2: I've contextualized the wood situation in a really different way. The responsibility of taking control of the fire ended up falling on me. So I had to engage in a lot of problem solving and getting that fire started. Parliament Hill was like a Nazi occupied state where we had checkpoints and we had the enemy cutting off the supply line. So by supply line, I'm talking about, you know, managing our supply of wood. And the purposes of this was because the wood was central to the activation of our ceremony. And ceremony was a key part of us establishing our sovereignty on occupied settler space. So with the wood, we had a clandestine smuggling operation, and we kind of had to revert to indigenous ways of carrying out responsibilities. We had kind of a runner system, and just the amount of subversive action we had to take in the face of surveillance by these armed state agents is really reflective of what was at stake here. This was all about establishing ceremony on space. Part of being in an occupation is so many surrealistic elements become normalized, like we have this giant flag that is kind of like fascist ideology on Turtle Island. You have these large Canadian flags, like, draped over these buildings, and just the aggressive nationalism, which is rooted in the violent dispossession and expropriation of indigenous bodies and lands and communities. The Canadian state itself is inherently violent, and that was reflected in what the struggle was about, was about a peaceful, reciprocal movement. First, a very selfish, exploitive, competitive system of colonial ideologies, And I think a key part of our success was that we proved that through ceremony, this framework can be used in any kind of spatiality to reclaim sovereignty over urban cyberspace.
0: And on Canada Day itself, on July 1st, Parliament Hill was the site of a full day of massive nationalist celebration. There was a huge crowd, many performances, appearances by celebrities and dignitaries, the whole works. Throughout the day, those engaged in the ceremony of reoccupation continued to hold space on the hill. Mostly, those attending the celebrations and the musicians on the stage ignored the reoccupiers. And as they and their message continued to be ignored, as settler colonial celebration continued to erase Indigenous realities, the reoccupiers decided that the goal of Unsettling Canada 150 required a further refusal to be silenced, so they collectively began to move into the crowd and to make some noise
2: eventually, now that we've established our sovereignty on the hill, that gave us more freedom to facilitate more disruption and to unsettle more people.
1: A lot of the people in the crowd, they all have their backs turned, and it was like that. The whole couple of days that we were right there on Parliament, people refused to acknowledge our presence. And I mean, even though this is rooted in ceremony, this is rooted in traditional ceremony, it was still a reoccupation. And it was also meant to get their attention because we were telling everybody we wanted to have a conversation. It, it was meant to unsettle 150. So how could we not play the offensive and start moving towards them and getting to really see us? And we had a die-in planned. We had these events planned ahead of time to get people to pay attention to what we were doing. And that was why we did it. And that's why it goes beyond ceremony.
5: So when we moved into the crowd, we formulated a circle. It was mainly the protectors and other indigenous individuals who were in the crowd with us that committed to a die-in. So a die-in, essentially, was, they were linked arms and they were on the ground laying on their backs in the mud and in the rain. And we were saying specific chants while we were trying to disrupt and get the attention of, knowledge of the musicians on the stage to get us to go on the stage and speak and to hear our story, but also to just get people to pay attention to us and see what we're actually doing.
2: Several times there's like momentum shifts that were against us and somehow the hive mentality kicked in where we worked it out, and worked out what was best for disrupting the celebration. So at one point we had to retreat and then everyone thought it was over and then Candace spoke. And then all of a sudden we're just like back on the offense again. And that's when there's a confrontation between the RCMP where they formed the blockade in front of us as we tried to get further into the crowd.
4: Candace was leading us in the and in and these walks into the crowd and her language that she was speaking out to the crowd was saying, why are you celebrating? This is hurtful to us. We're afraid for our children. She's afraid for her family. She wants to be able to take care of them and challenge the structural violence. You know, we were in a space where people were very happy to ignore those structures of violence in favor of a national spectacle. And we're there in ceremony to challenge that. I don't think that disrespects or invalidates the ceremony because our existence in that space, however we do it, is inherently political. And that's the best way we can to protect our people and and try to have a voice in these spaces that we're very intentionally excluded from. It's also
5: important to note that the offensive we took up should never be framed as some type of act of violence when we have to understand Indigenous ceremonies, Indigenous rights to reclaim their sovereignty has always been seen as some type of violent act. So the fact that we went into the crowd and we unsettled the crowd and we made them anxious and kind of uneasy about what was going on isn't an act of violence and it's an, it's an act of unlearning. It's, it's, a, it's a way for them to see firsthand what's going on. And to go, hopefully even just go home and just do their own research and to get more invested in the message. It's always interesting how people in the crowd were claiming that we were being disrespectful or violent or inappropriate when there's people's lives literally on the line in this regard.
0: And so, on the night of July 1st, the Canada 150 celebrations on Parliament Hill came to an end. So, too, did the reoccupation ceremony. But the people involved in this act of asserting jurisdiction and sovereignty through ceremony are far from done, and they hope that their model for action is something other people can learn from and use.
4: The way that space worked over the last four days is really important to understand because we were met with a lot of fear and aggression over the structures we were trying to build, right? When the RCMP and their private security and the Ottawa police were trying to prevent us from coming in, it wasn't the people they were trying to prevent from coming in. It wasn't exactly people that they were afraid of, because, you know, we had tourists and everyone just hanging out. Parliament Hill is a public space, right? And it was public through the whole time they were setting up. It wasn't barricaded off until we got there. What they were afraid of were the lodge poles. They were really, really threatened by seeing the structure coming in. And that's why they were physically holding these poles down. And at every step, we met that same kind of fear and resistance. And we understood that the physical structures around which we create community were the things that policing was threatened by. These physical structures that allowed us to congregate and to be the people and to act in ceremony were exactly the things that these political machines feared. One, because they're visible, but two, and more so because they have a lot of power and resonance with Indigenous sovereignty. The sacred fire and the lodge and the way that we're able to behave in a traditional way around them, those are the manifestations of unceded land. And even people who aren't familiar with these concepts, they can understand that. That's why it's threatening. You know, and we were here totally peacefully, totally unarmed, with as much patience and friendliness and understanding as we could each individually muster, even as, you know, people were being punched in the face by racists who the police had no problem with and uh, escorted out peacefully while they were dragging away, especially the most visibly brown, indigenous, and queer people among us, and putting them in handcuffs inside these celebratory tents. What they were really threatened by was that we really, truly had indigenous structures, and we're bringing back that expression of what that hill is. That hill remains unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. We're definitely looking at starting a reoccupation collective,
1: something that's more permanent, something that, again, is based on community building and based on what this was having a conversation and showing people that, you know, we're decolonial hooligans. But, (laughs) you know, the ultimate goal of this is to create a space for our people, whether it's in our communities or in urban spaces or in academia. And now that we've got this momentum and this support, I think that it's a nice stepping stone into something more. And we also want to make it clear that this is something that wouldn't be possible without resources. And we need a lot of those Up until the police standoff, there was very, very little support. Nobody wanted to get involved. Nobody thought that this was going to go anywhere, and nobody thought that this was going to be conducted properly, or they didn't think it was going to be safe. They didn't really understand that we were working with the Baloteng Water Protectors, who were very traditional and very based in ceremony. So we had these two aspects working together, and we also had youth leading the charge. So we made sure that this was two-spirit inclusive. It was LGBTQ, specifically trans-inclusive in the ceremony space. So what we want is for people
5: to provide resources so that we can continue to do this work. We definitely need bodies, and that's important, but it's also possible to be such a small group of people and to have this big dream and to actually implement it into reality. And that's something we really want to spread as a message to other youth in their own social justice movements and fights as well, that even if you're just five students in high school or in university, if, if you have the drive, the will, and the strength to do it,
2: it's very much possible. This is a framework that can work in any kind of community, centering it around youth, specifically two-spirit or queer, or especially like female youth, because that was what our movement was powered from. So if you have these two elements of motivated youth who are powered by ceremony, that's a framework that could work in any kind of context as resistance.
1: This stems from the way that our communities have always been run. Indigenous people's communities are always, you know, matrilineal or matriarchy. Like the women hold the communities on their back and they leave the charge. And that's what you saw, especially with Candace. There's no hierarchy when we do this, at least that's how we try to approach it. And that's very similar to a lot of traditional government structures and communities. It's so different from, you know, Western society where there's always one person who's in charge. And for a lot of First Nations, you have a role within your community and that's very much how we approach this, I would say. Everybody kind of had a role.
2: We don't own this kind of framework. This framework, as we've proven, can work all over, you know, KK Canada.
0: One of the key goals, both for this action and for others that answered the call from Idle No More and Defenders of the Land, is unsettling Canada. The reoccupiers explained in greater detail their understanding of what exactly unsettling means.
3: How I see it is that Canada is imagined as settled, and then it becomes law through this imaginary. And by unsettling this imagination, for example, by asserting Indigenous jurisdiction, so unsettling is like reminding that what is think of as settled, which is this land, is not permanent. It's something that's repeated every day, and it's something that can be challenged every day. And it's like kind of lifting the dust, making room for something that was always there, which is Indigenous jurisdiction over their land.
4: I think that's exactly the way we've been understanding what unsettling means according to Idle More's call and Art Manual's direction for this period. And I think that the language of truth and reconciliation asserts and assumes resolve that, you know, the, the Indian question has been answered. And that the machines of oppression and defunding and pollution that continue to push our communities into more and more dire situations are sort of out of sight and out of mind because these questions have been answered, right? And that the fact that we would speak the truth to the violent colonial past in Canada would necessarily mean that we must reconcile it. And we're saying we're not reconciled. We want our land back. We want to have the freedom to perform our ceremonies. We want our freedom to be ourselves in urban space and reserved space and our space, which has been taken, and must now, we assert, be given back. So that's what unsettling is. It's rolling back that assumption of settlement, resolve, ending, and saying that this is an ongoing process, and we're going back to our traditional ways, and that requires Canada to give back stolen land.
0: You have been listening to an interview with Freddie Stony Point, Summer Harmony Twenish. Tricia Bazinet, Hamda Daria, and Elsa Hoover about the powerful reoccupation action that took place on Parliament Hill in the lead up to and on Canada Day. The interview was conducted by Greg McDougall, and the show was edited and produced by me, Scott Nye. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows,